Hey everyone, you're listening to Spark, where we amplify the voices of the Middle East startup, tech, and innovation ecosystem. I'm your host, Shireen, and along with our guests, we share with you expert insights on the latest and most relevant news. Our goal is to help you easily digest trending topics and be better equipped to know what to make of it all. Hey listeners, I've been wanting to do a show on food and agri-tech pretty much since I first started the podcast. Now that's because I'm very interested in food in addition to where it comes from and its effect on my body. In fact, my friends are always reminding me that I'm a very picky eater and they absolutely hate going to restaurants with me. And that's because I asked the staff about a million and one questions about all the ingredients in the meals and how they were prepared. I guess I prefer to buy my own groceries and cook my meals myself. That way I have full control over what goes into my body. Now, regardless of my personal preferences towards food consumption, startup entrepreneurs have been increasing their attention towards farming and agri-tech. And as a result, investors have been increasing their investments in the industry as well. Now, from my own point of view, I've been noticing more and more locally produced produce in the supermarket during my visits. I've been noticing brands pop up such as Oasis Green and NUS Farms. And this indicates to me an increase in business attention towards food security. And even amongst my friends, brands like Kipsons and Emirates Biofarm are more regularly discussed as a means to get these locally produced produce to their doorsteps more easily. Here on the show to talk to me in this episode about all things from farm to fork is Dr. Majid Al-Qasimi. Majid is an expert in food security. He has spent his career working extensively in the field in the UAE and has previously led the team that developed the country's federal government mandate for food security. Currently, Majid consults as a founding partner for the region's only food and agriculture sustainability consulting company, Soma Matter. He's very passionate about food, particularly how food is made. Oh, and he's also one of the founders of the region's leading podcasting networks, Finial Media. Together in this episode, we discuss the following aspects of food security, the importance of food security, the UAE's efforts towards ensuring food security, agriculture technology and trends that are supporting farmers, the business aspects of commercial farming, and food waste. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. How are you? How are you? You're right. I'm good. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. I'm super keen when when new podcasts are coming up. I'm like super keen. Um, okay, so basically, let's let's start from the beginning. I got into food in a funny way. I I love biology. That's really where the basis of all this is. Um, then I looked for a degree that was really giving me as as much depth and breadth in biology, which ended up being veterinary medicine. And then having my father, who's really big into agriculture, this sort of all culminated into this, where and how are we, you know, doing, you know, food in this country and, and how does food security fit in? So I was already thinking about food security when I was at university. All throughout my, my, my studies, I was thinking like, how do we, how do we make food in the UAE, in the Middle East? Where is food coming and going? We obviously don't have the environment to have those lush green farms that we have in, in, in Europe. Um, and so this is always in the back of my head. And when I came to the UAE, I started as a veterinarian practicing at Ain Zoo and then in the Environment Agency of Abu Dhabi. And then conservation sort of picked up in part of that and ultimately wrapped around when I joined the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment, where I was heading the food sector. So all of this, and I get this big picture, and then I was fortunate enough to work on the food security strategy for the country. 
all that to say, this is my bread and butter. Um, I'm very passionate about food, not in the way that maybe a foodie might go. And it's funny, my wife and I always laugh that she's the foodie and I just worry about how food is made. So I know essentially I, I not only peek behind the curtain, I, I've spent a lot of time behind the curtain on food and I can talk long and hard about where food comes from and food security and that's why I'm on the show. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so look, 90% of the food in the UAE is imported. Yep. What did it take for the government to realize, oh, that's a really high number. Let's think of how we grow food locally, particularly produce. Was there like a tipping point at, su- at some stage amongst someone in the background? So I, I would say this sort of conversation happened a long time ago, but not in the way we understand it today. If you look at the way the country was established in the UAE, Sheikh Zayed in his early days understood the importance of agriculture and producing our own food in terms of giving the people something of value, land, and working that land for productivity. And he developed a lot of irrigation technology with you know, experts globally to allow people to farm. And what we were farming were date palms. Now, in the expanding last two decades, the country has been growing super fast. And there's only so many dates people will eat. And so with that, global trade has stepped in to fill in the gaps. You know, with a growing population, you need to be able to accommodate, you know, different tastes, demands, the, you know, what people want to eat on a day-to-day and then global trade has also provided variety. So we're getting, you know, things for as far flung as New Zealand and South America, the U.S. And yeah, we now have all of this stuff essentially in the supermarkets and the retailers. And that's where the sort of trade has continued to grow. Now, we produce other things in the country. There are poultry and dairy. There are, you know, these essential foodstuffs. What you eat the vegetables with, basically. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and people have explored different things and have tried. I'll go as far back as when I was a child and my dad was, I want to say gardening, but he was farming in our home and he was setting up net houses and he was planting carrots. And my dad has extensively traveled the world and lectured on food and agriculture and varieties of plants that we can grow. And I continue to do that work today where I'm looking at, oh, we've always been using these technologies. So dates are big export for us. In fact, they are a huge export to the point where we've now got a global network of date farms that coordinate through the UAE office and we export into the wider world. We're the largest exporter in the world for dates. So there was then the food security center that was established in Abu Dhabi. And that was a part when was given the mandate to create a food security sort of network of companies. And that was before my time at the the ministry. Um, So this was uh, pre-2014. And it was when I joined the ministry in 2015 that, or 16 rather, that I started doing a lot of international trade discussion that people were like, oh, and what about food security? And I was like, wow, hold on. We don't have a federal mandate on food security yet. And so I turned around to the minister and I said, we should develop a mandate for the federal government so that we have all Emirates and the whole country with a singular sort of vision for food security. And he said, go on, do it. And I spent a year working on that. And we aligned with local entities, municipalities, the companies, and we did some great work. And then obviously that as a precursor, Her Excellency was nominated in 2018 
uh, to become the minister of food security. So I would say the theme was always there. It's just matured over time. And we're at a point now where there's investment, there's a lot of attention. And through COVID, it's become front of mind. No, I definitely understand what you mean in the sense that I think food is an industry that's COVID proof. Everyone's got to eat. And I remember mm-hmm. going to Spinney's during COVID, looking for my internationally imported packets and they weren't there. So I was like, oh, I got to start using all these local brands now. Mm-hmm. And once I did, I actually started realizing, you know what, support the local agritech community. And that's all I buy now. I, I, would, I would say you don't even have to support the agritech community. You just have to support your local farmers. True. So the, the, challenge, the challenge with understanding how food is made, especially in this region, is most people assume you can't grow anything in the desert. And that is flat out wrong. You can do a lot here quite well. And with that, there are some very, very phenomenal sort of, I want to use the word traditional, but sort of open field agriculture practices here that are doing a good job of providing quality produce. And at that, they are organic. And you can find them at the organic farmer's market. You can find them in the retailers. And these guys are, are doing the bread and butter of growing food. So you clarified when I said agritech that there's a difference between, or rather a variation between agritech and farming. Yeah. What in your definition is the difference? Okay. So farming is the production of food on the land, right? Um, on any part of land. Um, ag tech is agriculture technology. This is technology that is used in agriculture. You can have ad, ag tech that doesn't produce any food, and you can also have ag tech that is a production system. So if you'll allow me, I think going to what you were talking about, you're talking about technology that enhances or allows for better or more efficient production of food, and at that, vegetables. So what's front of mind with everybody when you say ag tech, people think of hydroponics. You know, um, this is nutrient-based water systems that help plants grow more efficiently or effectively, get better yields. Now, you can also enclose that, and so you get a closed system agriculture, and there will be technology in the way that environment is controlled, as well as technology that is in how the plants are supplied their nutrients. And that is all ag tech, including the software that is used to run what are called maybe recipes or uh, protocols for the cycling of nutrients to the plants and the lighting. Um, and what, what you can progressively do is go from a very open field sort of traditional farm. And when I say traditional is sort of simple irrigation uh, and plants in the soil or animals in the field, all the way to a container that is completely sealed. You know, you have, nothing going in or out other than controlled environment, air and water and nutrients. And that completely enclosed encapsulated thing has artificial light systems and technology that essentially are are providing nutrients to grow the plant. So really what we're doing is to what extent are we trying to control the environment by which the plant or maybe the animal is being grown in? Got that. And therefore, you have agriculture in the desert. Irrigation technology has been around since the 60s. But what we're seeing now is through electronics, um, through computers, through uh, robotics even, the ability to leverage those technologies to gain more efficiencies. So question, can I, as someone who's really, really passionate about food, go purchase these technologies 
get a container in the desert and start my own farm? Or would I need a team of different skill sets to be able to produce this? So it comes down to what scale. I mean, you could run a hydroponic system at home in an apartment. Like that's totally viable. In fact, you can buy these kits. Is it the ones you get from like Virgin? Wherever you want to get them, exactly that, yeah. (laughs) So I got one, but I'll tell you what was shocking. The um, individual pots that you then need to replant was like 100 dirhams. So it doesn't really make sense to pay 100 dirhams for a stock of basil. For those that aren't informed, yes. I mean, you know, you've done done the right. Your P&L on that basil is not good. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I found it to be more gimmicky. Let's call that the growing at home for dummies kit that people can then start and sort of be, let's be honest, there's something that that product is doing that maybe isn't so obvious to you, which is reconnecting people with a plant. Kind of does it all for you. But there is something to say where you grow a little bit. You know, I grew in my garden. You can grow in pots. There are so many levels by which we can get involved with this. So no, that isn't what I would call farming at home um, or growing your own food. Um, But you can do a whole DIY. And there's so many DIY hydroponic setups where you just buy plumbing and you drill your holes and you put little nets and then you put your sponges and your your plants and and you learn this. Where can I get this from? Sounds like fun. The internet. Um, Literally, you can do everything from, you know, like DIY hydroponic to buying hydroponic kits. And there are people that sell these at home. There are systems that you can get fully fledged for a balcony, for a garden with little sort of closed environment. I mean, literally the scale is quite nice. You can go from I just want something that'll fit on this one meter squared to listen, I've got my whole backyard doing nothing. I'd rather be growing, you know, my own tomatoes and vegetables that will work in a system like this. Got it. Now, now let's say I was interested, Majid, in doing this at a commercial scale. Okay. And this is what, yeah. So this is what I was going to get to. There are some people that will commercialize the garden, but we can talk about that on another podcast. (laughs) But if you're going into commercially scaling, there's a completely different proposition there. If you're trying to produce food to be able to sell to market, there are a lot of sort of marketing and commercial side of things you need to figure out. So back to the original question, can you do it yourself? Sure. If you've got a very tight knit setup, your niche, and you're just doing it for a few more hundred, tens of thousands of dirhams, maybe, but you'd be super niche. You'd probably have to be able to take a very specific product and also speak to the community around you to be able to produce that. Now, when you want to scale to retailers, here I'll give you a dynamic that in the country is difficult uh, for local farmers to deal with. So say you want to produce commercially for somebody like Carrefour or Spinney's. Now, a retailer like that, how often are you in the supermarket? Me personally, like every other day. Every other day. The average Joe, maybe once a week. Average Joe once a week, but every other day. You've been every other day. How often are the shelves empty? Rarely. I'm always going to find my green veggies. Exactly. That's because the requirements for the retailer is to ensure for their customer, the greens are always there. So now when you can understand how many people are visiting these retailers, the hundreds and thousands of tons of green veggies they need, you're not going to be able to set up a company farm your green veggies and walk into Carrefour and be like, cool, can I stock? Because the dynamics at the retailer are very different. It's not sure we'll take, you know, your field of green for that month. They're like, cool, we need a minimum of maybe 10,000 tons a month. And you're going, hmm. 
And then they'll also negotiate the rate. And then you'll very quickly find out that you can't compete because they are taking these imports globally where these people are already working at massive scale and the economies of scale for them are easy for them to then bring in leafy greens every day for very little. And the retailer can put their margin on and you can always have them. This is why companies like Pure Harvest are coming in to really sort of edge in an opportunity and say, actually, you know what, we can produce tomatoes at scale that taste amazing using these technologies and make a space for ourselves on the retail shelves. But I know the team very well at Pure Harvest. I know what it's taken to set it up. And I don't know how many millions you want to be raising to be able to start a farm like that. What you're farming also matters, right? You want to go in tomatoes, you're competing with Holland, you're competing with um, much of Europe, Spain, and then the local producers. So it's a bit of a crowded space. However, if there are opportunistic or unique you know, vegetables or fruits, things like maybe pomegranates that can be grown in the Levant that do well, maybe you have a better chance of setting up a farm. Interesting. So when I go into my local grocery store and I see all these locally produced uh, produce, mm-hmm. they effectively are making this a huge scale is what you're saying, right? And it's not They're trying. MVP. Okay. Trying. Yeah, no, no, no. MVP. I mean, so most of them will have to start at MVP, but my advice is don't start a farm unless you've already guaranteed your offtake. The worst thing you could do is invest, whether it's in an open field or in a closed system, invest a ton of money into setting up a farm and then having it go nowhere and have it, you know, you harvest and then it rots either in the field or on the shelves because you haven't been able to offload it. And unfortunately there are farmers that will deal with that when you have a glut in the production cycle of a season where people will come in and go, you know what? Tomatoes are doing really well. Everybody wants cherry tomatoes. And that was what everybody was thinking. And they come cherry tomatoes and the retailer's like, man, I can find this at like two dirhams a kilo. I don't need to take it for five. And you're like, it doesn't make any economic sense. So what do they do? They either sit there and eat it, but you've produced so many, so many tomatoes. So there's, there's these like dynamics in the market that need a lot more clarity on, on how retailers are, are pricing things. Um, I would say from a policy level, it would be good to support local producers by creating a sort of separate category that's part marketing, part consumer awareness, and part policy to get locally produced food in at the right price point for the consumer and for the producer. Do any of these local players have to have, or rather, do they have some kind of a PPP partnership or government support to even have access to the space required to produce what they're doing at scale? So there have been some sort of agreements with retailers to say, we'd like a shelf designated for them. And, you know, so the way retailers work is they'll give you shelf space and sell you the shelf space and then take a rebate on what you've sold and push back everything that's either expiring or, or running off. So you're really, so ultimately you're not selling to the retailer. You are buying shelf space so that your produce gets sold and then you get paid back what is sold and the rest you have to take off the shelves. That's why you see stalkers go into supermarkets and you go, excuse me, where's the peanut butter? He's like, I don't work here. I'm just stalking. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? Interesting. That's how that works. Retail, I mean, whoever thinks they're walking into, you know, Carrefour and be like, oh man, Carrefour buys everything. No, they don't. <laughs> they have shelf space and they're selling that to the producers or to the wholesalers. And that's a, that's a challenge in the market where a farmer 
And this is the challenge for any farmer who's producing tomatoes or otherwise go along the value chain, i.e. I produce the tomatoes, I sell it on for X, so-and-so sells it on for X plus and X plus plus at the retailer. So the consumer goes, wow, these are really nice tomatoes. Of the people who are part of that value chain, the retailer takes the most of the value. Maybe the wholesaler takes a little bit less than that. And the farmer gets the least. So Majid, um, question for you. Audio, as I kind of mentioned in, uh, at, when we began talking, has been investing heavily in agritech. And they have a scheme going on right now. It's a three-year agtech program where they're doing 75% rebates on all R&D activity. So I'm curious, for an investment company that's so concerned about returns, um, why are they giving such huge rebates? Is there some kind of government back-end support in order to make, sh- you know, to kind of fulfill the food security mission the UAE is currently embarking on? Or is there some other objective there? No, there's, there's, there's both, right? One, there will be returns. It has to make sense. But two, ultimately, this is an initiative from the government and from the leadership to say we need to be investing in this sector. And what Adio, the Abu Dhabi Investment Office, is doing is investing in technologies that are not only critical for the UAE, but for the region. And what they're asking companies is to bring technology that's going to be useful, valuable, or critical for growing food in this part of the world, and to say, build out an R&D program to catapult your product in this region, i.e. test and, and align or tune your product for this region. And we'll give you 75% of that investment back, right? And that's critical because typically with this part of the world, not only do we take 95, sorry, 90% of what we consume are, is imported, but we also take technologies from temperate worlds, uh, temperate uh, sort of regions, from the West, from countries that have very different geography, uh, climate, and conditions and go, you know what? They're growing hundreds of tomatoes in these boxes. We'll do the same. You keep referencing tomatoes. <laughs> I think you so really I like tell tomatoes. You why, because it's, no, I don't actually, but I say <laughs> tomatoes because this is what everybody is on. And I, I'll say, I'll bring up why, because everybody thinks that growing tomatoes is going to be the big ticket item. It's not food security. I don't know about you, but I eat maybe one or two tomatoes. Same. I'm not a tomato fan. <laughs> I can, you know, right? So when people are like, yo, this is food security, I was like, I don't know how long we would survive on leafy greens and tomatoes, right? There's a whole spectrum of food out there that needs to be produced. And then food security, we'll get to the definition, but is not about producing all the food in country. You need to balance out trade and local production and create more representation of local production. It's critical work. And I've always said that the UAE is going to be the springboard for how the Middle East will feed itself. Yeah, I agree. I mean, generally the UE is, I would say, the tech pioneer mm-hmm. of the region. So whatever comes out Leadership of here. Leadership in many ways. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I also think that companies internationally want to expand to the UAE. So if you are in North America, Europe, Asia, and you think, what is the business capital of the Middle East? People will say Dubai, Dubai, Dubai. Um, yeah. You know, with that, of course, UAE, I would say, sorry, Abu Dhabi, so I would say UAE as a whole. Um, so that leads me actually, you've actually clarified what was on top of mind. So which was as follows. I looked into the companies Adi had been invested in, and they were largely... Mm-hmm international. So from Mm -hmm. Finland, Korea, and whatnot, um, Mm -hmm. some of them had formed joint ventures regionally or locally, let's say. Mm -hmm. Um, 
kind of to embark, but it kind of made me stop and think, okay, we don't have R and D talent here. Why is the subsidy being given to international companies, which you in some ways answered that, um, they bring their technology. So we don't start from scratch, but we adapt them to the region. So, so that's, that's part of the answer. I'd say also, I wouldn't discount that we, I wouldn't discount any R and D here in country. You look at New York University in Abu Dhabi, you look at UAE University, there is work being done. The challenge there is when you have it as very sort of technical, oh, there's also the International Center for Biosaline Agriculture that's right next to uh, the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment in Dubai. There, there are a lot of institutions that are doing research, but the challenge is this arc from getting stuff that's purely theoretical and almost sort of blue sky thinking to where you start to get sort of trials, pilots, and then the next step where you start to commercialize technology, research and technology to get it into the private sector and get it active in the economy, that journey still needs to be refined here. And there are some challenges in getting purely sort of academic research to sort of build out into commercial venture. We're working on that, no doubt, but we're doing it in parallel to what we're doing with investing globally, right? We have global technology that we can attract into the region. And then with those joint ventures and that sort of, um, sort of marrying of local a- activity and international activity to sort of accelerate this theme, if you will. I mean, if anything, the big idea here is if we can grow food in this region, we'll be able to share how to grow food in the future deserts of the world if climate change is going to be going the way it does. Hmm. Majid, last thing I want to discuss with you is food wastage. So picking on what you, yeah, (laughs) picking on the way you described earlier um, how producers have to oversupply to retailers and that at the end of the day, all that gets chucked out. Where does that go? And how can we maybe using technology produce in a manner where supply is more resonant with demand? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple angles here. One, where all of that goes in a very sort of basic way is landfill. And unfortunately, food in landfill causes a lot of off-gassing of methane and is, is ultimately, if you could split your waste, you should be splitting it out. And I'm half German, so I've seen this done well back in the day in Germany, which is you have your, your compostable sort of food waste, you have your sort of plastics and aluminum recyclables, and then you have your other waste, and then you have paper. You can split the waste streams in many ways. And, and one of the sort of forerunners here in the region that's doing that is really BIA and Sharjah. They are like the, the primo waste management company in the country because they are cognizant of having to separate these streams. Now, when you're talking about how do we have a sort of more responsive food production um, so that we're not creating so much waste? There's a number of things, right? There is a la carte versus buffet. That's like the first step, (laughs) right? I don't know about you, but I've never seen an empty buffet. And then you come back the next morning and the buffet is still there. And I'll say this, hotels have done a good job already of trying to recycle things. So you have fruit and then when the fruit is going slightly, they put salad and then the fruit and then they juice and et cetera. Yeah. So those are very important in the kitchen and in the production line sort of 
processes. But ultimately, there are going to be things that you are wasting at the end of your value add process. And there's a really cool company called Winnow out here that have been doing some good work where they have essentially a scanning technology over a bin. And what happens is the kitchen staff, when they clear plates, they scrape this into the bin and it's taking photos as food's falling in and it can categorize what kind of foodstuffs are going out. And at the end of the day, it'll give you a register of everything you've thrown out. And immediately you can see, oh man, we are, we are throwing way too much chicken away. Like, you know what? We could, we could cut our chicken portions. And immediately within the production system, you get a response to the procurement to be like, okay, guys, I think we've, we've doubled up on chicken too much. Nobody's really eating chicken these days. Let's respond and let's reduce chicken. People are putting the chicken on their plates, but then throwing it. So sure. maybe it's the quality let's, of let's chicken. Work, or... let's, <laughs> let's work our way back. Let's work our way back. I started with the waste landfill and I'll work back to consumer because ultimately there's where all the problems are. Majid, you know, I didn't know where you were going with describing this tech. I thought you were going to go down the lines of, oh, and then they take food that is still whole out of the bin. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you, you point to me, somebody who's willing to do that. Uh, there are people willing to I was do like, that, I'm going to see way. where he goes with this. No, no, no. By the way, you do know of these, there are these like dumpster divers in the US that like jump into dumpsters at Whole Foods and like all these large retailers because they have to dump food into these bins at the end of the day because they cannot keep it on shelf because of the food laws in, in the US. And there are people that will live... I mean, it's not off. It's just been on shelf for three days or so on, whatever the shelf life is allowed to be. And then by law, they have to dispose of it. But the food that goes in the bin would be packaged, correct? So it'll be like, I don't know, stuffed or deli. No, okay. Banana. The chicken banana. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, right? but that's Oranges. a seal. Yeah. So why are we throwing it away? True. Why not donate it? Well, this is the idea is that they're trying to work out donate systems. Okay. So this is all still at the sort of like manufacturing retail. Now let's pull back to people buying food, right? And how people go about buying food. Now in a time and in this part of the world where typically we have come from modest families and modest times, the idea of having plenty of food was a sign of luxury, sign of wealth. And ultimately, if you could offer food, was also a sign of, of great generosity and, and virtue, sort of. Arab you know, hospitality. Right? Arab hospitality. And, you know, the, 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 the idea that you should have enough food for everybody and nobody should go wanting. And, you know, generation to generation, we're dealing with that, right? We're very much more food conscious. We all want to know where our food comes from and what's in it. And then also we don't want to be wasteful. The food wastage in the supply chain or the value chain, this is right from farm through all the processes to get to the consumer, is about 51%. That means for everything that was intended to be grown, only half of that gets to the consumer. And then food waste at the consumer level is about a third to 50%, right? And there are companies globally that are using everything from rind and peel of fruit to create you know, bioplastics. Soaps. <laughs> well, you're saying soaps, but bioplastics so that you have compostable packaging, right? So we don't have to use plastics in packaging. 
Majid, one last question, and it's actually more of a personal curiosity. Mm -hmm. Given that you understand food quality, what is your favorite restaurant to go to in terms of knowing that the food you're eating is clean Mm. in the UAE? There are two. It was Baker and Spice and Kismet. So Baker and Spice does a lot to be able to source locally. And I know the guy that started Kismet used to run Baker and Spice. Everything in Baker and Spice was organic. It was local, then regional. And Kismet was really in, very much in the same vein. It was a beautiful mix of culture. Okay, things were being sourced from around the world. But it was really about showcasing different food cultures. Interesting. I haven't been to it, nor have I heard of it, actually. Baker and Spice is more kind yeah. of a, house, a household name. Household name, name yeah. Interesting. Okay. I will go to Baker and Spice this weekend. Cool. Enjoy it. (laughs) Okay. Done, done, done. Red chukchuka. That's, that's the one without fail. Best show. But that's tomatoes. I thought we don't like tomatoes. It's totally crazy. It's the, it's the one that I I will have. Those are the only tomatoes I eat in the (laughs) chukchuka. Majid, I've had a blast. Absolute blast here as well. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to future episodes on your podcast listening platform of choice. And whilst you're there, leave a review and rate our show so that other aspiring innovators can find it. To find a summary of our discussion today and links to our guests, access our show notes by visiting our website, sparkwithshireen.com. If you don't want to miss out on future announcements, subscribe to our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn and Instagram at sparkwithshireen. Before you go, I'd like to let you know that we love hearing from our listeners. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, including guest or topic recommendations, drop us a message through our website or social platforms. If you didn't have a pen or paper handy to write all this down, don't worry. We've gone ahead and added all these links in the episode description. All you have to do is scroll down and click when you have a moment. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.